All right. If I can go ahead and ask everyone to make their way back to their seats. Um, I saw a lot of people over in the great room, so it's all right. A lot of people are going to miss the, the context of this sermon. That's all right. You faithful few will get a chance to be part of it. Anyway, um, so one, again, let me thank you for being here this morning. Um, again, I, I try to make this point pretty regularly, but one of the things that I really do believe, and I think Scripture points this out, is that um, your presence here this morning is not by chance. Um, in, in fact, um, it's not only not by chance, but it's by God's intention that you're here this morning. So I don't know exactly what it is or what it might be that God has you to hear this morning. Maybe it's uh, from a conversation you have with somebody um, here at the church. Uh, maybe it was something in the worship leading this morning. Maybe it was uh, one of the songs that we, we sang. Maybe it's something that will be read or talked about in the sermon. I'm not sure what it is, but I would encourage you to look at this time um, as a time in which God wants to say something to you. And so just remember that um, as uh, you progress throughout the rest of uh, this time together. Um, We're going to be looking at Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 7 today. So if you have a Bible, a physical Bible made of paper, and you want to turn to Jeremiah 29, feel free to do so. If your Bible is on your smartphone and you want to go there, Jeremiah 29 is found magically somehow in the digital inner workings of your phone. If you don't have that stuff, I'm going to put it up on the screen in a minute so you can read it up there. Um, Part of the reason we're looking at Jeremiah 29 today is because the vision statement of Seven Hills Fellowship is that we want to see Rome and all its communities flourish. We want to see Rome and all its communities flourish. And there's a very real sense in which Jeremiah 29 talks very directly about what it looks like uh, for people who love the Lord um, to invest in a community so that that community might flourish. And so we're going to jump into that in just a few minutes. So Jeremiah 29 uh, very clearly was written by this man named Jeremiah. He was a prophet. And he was writing about 600, a little bit over 600 years before the birth of Christ. And he actually started to be a prophet during the reign of Josiah, who was one of the good kings. But what's interesting is while he was um, sort of entering his ministry as a prophet, uh, the culture around uh, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom began to be pretty bad. And it was bad in the sense that the people, the children of Israel, uh, the Jews, began worshiping Baal. And so they actually started erecting um, temples to Baal and, and, and altars to Baal, and they actually started being involved in child sacrifice. And so one of the things that happened is the, the Jews became corrupt, and they began sort of following the religions of the people around them, is God said, hey, I'm going to have to discipline you. And, and the form of the discipline came in the kingdom of Babylon. If you guys remember King Nebuchadnezzar, he, he came and he conquered Jerusalem. And part of what he did is he, he took all of these leaders and artisans and priests away from Jerusalem, and he took them to Babylon, where he sought to sort of um, pull away the leadership from the people of Israel and then integrate them into Babylonian culture. And uh, so what's happening here in Jeremiah 29 is that God speaks to Jeremiah, who's back in Jerusalem, and he says, I want you to send this message to my people who are in exile in Babylon. And so that's the context of the seven verses we're getting ready to read. So again, Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 7. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiachin 
and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. So right now we're reading about two different deportations. And so uh, typically these deportations, when a a king, uh, a conquering king, would take people out of their country and bring them into his country, the purpose of that was to make sure that, uh, you know, these other people, the leaders, really assimilated completely into, in this case, Babylonian culture and really left Israel bereft of their own leadership. Verse 3, he entrusted, that is Jeremiah, entrusted the letter to Elasa, son of Shaphan, and to Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Second time, God makes the point of saying, I'm the one that's carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Let's take one moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your reminder um, that you are not only God of, uh, of our blessings, but you're even God of the painful things in our lives, Father. And that just feels so mysterious for us. It, it seems so hard to believe that you could possibly um, do good through the pain and the suffering in our lives. And yet, Father... Um, we don't really have another choice but to believe and to take you at your word. And so, Father, this morning I pray that we would do that. And not only, Father, do I pray that you would enable us to take you at your word, but I pray that you would enable us to do what the children of Israel uh, were commanded to do, that we might put down roots, that we might serve, that we might pray for and work towards um, the peace and the prosperity of the places that you've called us to live and to serve. And so, Father, we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So many of you guys know that um, I'm a soccer, former soccer player. Now I'm just a short, um, slow person. Anyway, former soccer player. And, uh, but I, man, I absolutely loved watching soccer, you know, when I was younger. I still love to watch soccer when I'm able to. Part of you guys, uh, most of you probably know that American soccer is not anywhere close to being on par with soccer in the rest of the world. So every now and then, uh, there's an American soccer player who will sort of make their way over to Europe, which is typically sort of where all the best soccer players play, and they'll sort of ply their trade in Europe and see if they can develop. Well, um, over the last, you know, 30 or so years, there are a handful of players that have done that, and the two best ones um, are uh, Brad Friedel, who was a goalkeeper who played for UCLA, and, uh, and then another guy who maybe, maybe some of you are familiar with, his name is Landon Donovan. He's sort of the leading goal scorer that we've ever had as an American. Here's a picture of Brad Friedel. So Brad Friedel grew up actually outside of Cleveland, Ohio. So if you've got any Cleveland or people in the house, that's where he grew up from. Well, so Brad was a fantastic goalkeeper. He was great at, you know, blocking shots and even saving penalty kicks. He's got incredibly long arms. In fact, to intimidate the other team when they were taking a penalty kick, he used to stand in the goal mouth and he would hang his arms on the crossbar and he was stretched like that with his feet on the ground. He's a really, you know, lengthy guy. And so, he, you know, he made his way over to England where he played for Liverpool and Tottenham and had just, just really a very, very good career for an American. Well, it was interesting because um, after he'd been over there in England for not long, a couple of years, I remember watching an interview with him on TV. And again, knowing that he was an American, knowing that he had played at UCLA, not knowing that he was from Cleveland, but I heard him interviewed and he had a British accent. 
And I remember thinking, that is bizarre. You know, I know that, uh, that you don't really have a British accent. But what had happened is he had assimilated so much into the culture, into the country of England, that he'd even picked up this accent. It was really interesting. Now, contrast that with Landon Donovan, who we've got a picture of Landon up here in a minute. So Landon um, went to play for uh, Bayer Leverkusen and then played for Bayern Munich for a little while. And his experience was exactly the opposite. Not only did he not assimilate into German culture and into the German Bundesliga, but he hated it, right? And so whereas uh, Brad Friedel completely adopted it and completely assimilated, um, really ultimately what happened is that Landon Donovan had sort of an oppositional experience to the whole culture and the whole league. And so part of the reason that I use them as examples is because part of what's going on here in the context of Jeremiah 29 is you've got these exiles, right? You've got these Jewish people who are living abroad. They're away from home. And the question that has to be asked, how do they respond when they're in the midst of that exile? Because the tendency is for us as Christians living in exile, and we'll talk about this in a little while, is either to completely assimilate, right? To, to go Brad Friedel and to all of a sudden just have a British accent and to embrace everything that that particular culture has to offer and to just sort of without criticism, um, just sort of embrace it and assimilate 100%. The danger with that is you assimilate all the values and the beliefs of that culture and you lose your distinctiveness as a Christian. On the other hand, there are some of us who, as believers, we enter into the culture into which God has called us in an oppositional way, more like Landon Donovan. We just sort of hate it. We just want to get out. We just want to go back home. And as a result, we don't actually influence anybody positively or that culture positively at all. That's the tendency is to either sort of be completely uh, assimilated or to be completely oppositional. What's interesting is here in Jeremiah 29, God gives us a blueprint of how we as exiles can enter into the places that God has called us. And again, this is tied back to the vision statement of Rome, Georgia, that we're called to see Rome and all of its communities flourish. So how should we respond when we are away from home? Let's look and see what Jeremiah 29 says. We're gonna look at verse one. Verse one essentially tells us that we're to remember that we are exiles, right? And that's true not just for the Jews, but it's true for us as well. Verse one says this, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar has carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So again, the reminder here is that the Jews had been defeated by the Babylonians and all of these influential people had been taken out of Israel so they couldn't lead in Israel. They couldn't start some sort of a counter-revolution. And so these priests, these prophets, these skilled workers, these artisans had all been deported from Babylon. And the hope for Babylon was that these people are all just gonna assimilate into Babylonian culture and they'll lose their distinctiveness as Jews. The Jews, as a result, were painfully aware of their exile, right? They absolutely longed for home. They knew what they were missing. The point for us this morning is that we experience the opposite. Sometimes I think in our culture, we forget that we are exiles too, right? That that's part of our status as Christians, that we are exiles. Um, In fact, in the words of Petra, we are strangers. We are aliens. We are not of this world. If you're uh, over 40, you get that. If you're under 40, you might not. Anyway, it's a Christian rock and roll band from the 70s and 80s. Anyway, here's, here's what the New Testament has to say about our status as exiles. Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 is this hall of faith where it's taking a look at all these um, you know, people who trusted uh, by faith in God. 
But it says this, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. And part of what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's saying, acknowledging, remembering that you are in exile creates an appropriate longing for home. It creates an appropriate awareness that this is not your true home. When I was um, in um, seminary, I went to seminary in St. Louis, and so born in California, don't remember anything, Uh, moved to Pensacola, Florida. My dad was uh, in the military, Um, totally remember being a kid in Pensacola, Florida, then moved to Greenville, South Carolina. And so each, each of these places had one thing in common, you're pretty close to the water. And I would actually go back to, to Pensacola, Florida every summer and spend a couple weeks there with my grandmother and my great-grandmother. And it was just always this sort of magical experience. And so there's a real sense in which this idea of Pensacola being near the water felt like home. And I remember after two years of being up in St. Louis, very, very far away from any body of water, salt water that is, and I remember being just really acutely aware of a longing to go back to see the ocean. And during that time, there was a, a Counting Crows song. I don't know if you guys, I'm, this is back to the 90s or whatever. But uh, there was a Counting Crows song called Long December. And uh, one of the lines in that song said essentially this, it's been a long December and there's reason to believe that maybe this year will be better than the last. I can't remember all the times I tried to tell myself to hold on to the moments as they pass. And it's one more day up in the canyon and it's one more night in Hollywood. It's been so long since I've seen the ocean, I guess I should. And I remember vividly standing in the parking lot of Twin Oaks Presbyterian Church and hearing that song, and it just sort of resonating a little bit with my heart because I felt this absolute longing to go back to this place that was a shadow of home for me. Some of you know the longing of being in exile, right? Some of you are aware of that longing of being in exile. It may be that you're from Atlanta or maybe you're from the northeast or maybe you're from the west right and so maybe for you it's a geographical exile that you're here and and you long for that place that is home or represents home to you but maybe that longing isn't a geographical longing right maybe it's more metaphysical right maybe um maybe maybe your husband left maybe your wife left and the longing that you feel is a longing for what should have been home right maybe your parents divorced And the reality is that that place called home has been destroyed and you long for what it should have been. Part of what God is doing when he acknowledges, asks us to acknowledge and remember that we are exiles is he's inviting you to remember that you are an exile. And in that, God is inviting you to long for home, right? He's actually giving you an opportunity to long for that place that's called home, right? C.S. Lewis actually addresses this and he creates a distinction between the physical place, whether it's a family or um, a city that you call home, and the thing that that city or that family is actually uh, a deeper reflection of. And so here's what C.S. Lewis has to say about this longing. This is a long quote, and I'm not putting it up on the screen, so you're just going to have to listen and pretend like I have a British accent when I read it. And speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. 
the secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when, in very intimate conversation, the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves, the secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. And we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Wordsworth's expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his own past. But all this is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be itself a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them, and what came through them was longing, right? Longing for home, longing for that place that felt like it's where you belonged. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, right? What I was longing for wasn't Pensacola, right? What I'm really longing for is my true home. Breaking the hearts of their worshipers, for they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower that we have not yet found, the echo of a tune we have not yet heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. It's from C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory. All right, that's part of what's going on in this. Part of the reason, I think, that God took his people into exile so often was to create in them a longing and an awareness, an appropriate awareness of their true home. Part of the message for all of us in this room this morning is to embrace our status as exiles and to, to really allow yourself to feel the weight and the longing of home, of your true home, right? That's the first point we see in this passage is to remember that you're exiles, right? You're not home yet, Second thing we see in Jeremiah 29 is not only are we to remember that we're exiles, but we're to make this place our home, right? Whether that's Barrie or it's Rome, Georgia, or it's Shorter, or wherever it is that God has called you, he invites you to make this place home for now. Verses four through six say this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there and do not decrease. Now, if you were a Jew and you had been taken off into exile, you would not have wanted to hear this, right? You don't want to put down roots, right? You want to go back home. And what's interesting is in context here in the book of Jeremiah, we see that there are false prophets and the false prophets were prophesying to the exiled Jews, these Jews in Babylon. The false prophets were saying, hey, don't worry about it. You're going to be going home in no time. Like, it's just, it's just a couple of weeks. You're going to be back in no time. The false prophets were prophesying false hope to them. And God, at the same time, sends exactly the opposite message through Jeremiah. God tells the exiled Jews to make Babylon their home, right? Put down roots. Make Babylon your home. Don't withdraw. Don't ignore this place I've called you to. Rather, buy a house, go to work, marry, have children and grandchildren, go about living your life because God has called you here. Again, Rome, Georgia, 
Shorter, Barry, Floyd, wherever it is that God has called you, you're there for a purpose. God has called you here. So for many of you, for many of us, Rome isn't where you're from. You, you may even feel like your presence here is a mistake. I guarantee you, some of you feel like this is not where you're supposed to be, right? This is a mistake, God. What are you doing, right? Or, or maybe you're just very conscious that you're passing through. And so you're not going to put down any roots at all, right? In fact, you're going to just go home every weekend. The message for you this morning from this, however, is that God has brought you here, Rome, Georgia, Shorter, Barry, whatever it is, God has brought you here for a purpose. Don't miss it, right? Don't miss it. Put down roots. Make this place your home for now, right? Remember that you're in exile, but at the same time, put down roots and make this place your home because God has called you to this place for a purpose. Third thing that we see in Jeremiah 29 is that we're not just to remember that we're exiles. We're not just to make this place our home, but we're actually supposed to, called by God, to seek, to work, and to pray towards the flourishing of the city. That's what he's telling them in verse 7. He says this, Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And so, Again, it would be shocking uh, for the Jews to hear God say, put down roots, make this place your home, right? That would have been shocking. But it would have been utterly shocking for Jeremiah and for the Jews to hear God telling them, not only do I want you to put down roots and make this place your home, but I want you to work for the peace and the prosperity of Babylon, right? That's crazy. That would be like Churchill telling British uh, troops who had been captured and taken to Germany, hey, I want you guys to stay there, and I want you to put down roots, and I want you to pray and work towards the peace of Munich, right? I mean, that just would have been, it would have sounded absolutely crazy to them, and yet that's exactly what God is telling the Jews to do. He's saying, I want you to work and seek the prosperity of Babylon, right? That pronouncement would have been shocking. It would have been offensive, and the Jews would have been saying, these people are our, are our enemies, Shouldn't we be praying that you kill them all, right? Shouldn't that actually be what we're working towards? But what's interesting here is not only does God tell the Jews to seek the peace and the prosperity of Babylon, he goes further and he says, I want you to pray for it, right? I want you to pray for that place. I want you to pray for those people. So God isn't simply asking for their obedience in seeking the flourishing of the city. He is asking for their hearts to be moved with desire to seek the flourishing of Babylon. Does that make sense? In other words, for those of you in this room, God would call you to pray for Rome, Georgia, for the people of Rome, Georgia. God would call you to seek and also to pray for the flourishing of Shorter, right? The flourishing of Berry College, wherever it is that he has placed you. God doesn't just want your obedience in that place. He wants your heart in that place, right? That's just, it's, it really is a game changer. Now, here's what Tim Keller has to say about how to do this. He gives us a, a few different ideas of how to, to pray and work and seek the flourishing of the city. Now, he's thinking New York City, Rome, Georgia is, for those of you guys who have been to New York, it's a little bit different. Um, anyway, but one, part of what Tim Keller says is he wants, he, he thinks part of doing that means that we practice stand, what he calls standout virtue. And so practice living such virtuous lives that you really stand out from the rest of the world. So I've got a friend who I hang out with um, sometimes here in town who uh, not only is not a believer, he's pretty hostile towards Christianity, um, 
but on several different occasions, we've been friends now for several years, on several different occasions, um, he's told me, he said, you know, Brian, he said, um, I think you're really good. I think you're really a good person. And, uh, and what's interesting is part of the reason that that's shocking is because that's not usually what he's saying about Christians. Now, my response to him is always like, trust me, I'm not nearly as good as you think I am. But my also, also my response is to say that any goodness in me, though you are an atheist and probably hostile to Christianity, you have to understand that any goodness in me is because I'm created in God's image and because his Holy Spirit is at work in me, right? But again, the idea there is part of seeking the flourishing of Rome, Georgia, Shorter, Barry, the Floyd Hospital System, wherever you are, the public school system, is that we do need to practice virtue that stands out, that really stands out. The second thing Keller says is you've got to integrate faith and work. In other words, uh, part of what you do is, is that you, um, you work in such a way so that you're not just working for your bosses, you're not just working for a paycheck, but you're really working to reflect God's kingdom over you. And what's interesting is Keller uses this illustration where he says there was a man who owned, uh, I think it's the second largest used car dealership in the nation. And uh, as he was doing some research, he was a, a believer, he's a Christian, as he was doing some research, what he found is that sort of a demographic study showed that white males got the best deals when they would go in to negotiate prices on cars. And they were on the top end of who's getting the better deals. And then the people that were getting the worst deals were African-American women. And so part of what he did is he said, that's not okay. Like, that's not right. It's not just. It's not fair. And so what he did was he said, hey, we're going to change our pricing model so that everybody gets the same deal, right? Because essentially what was happening is that the African-American women were, uh, were sort of subsidizing the cars that these white Anglo males were purchasing simply because they didn't have the negotiating skills. And so when they made this change of flattening out of the prices for everybody, he was interviewed and people said, you know, do you think that this new strategy is going to help you make more money? Do you think you're going to sell more cars? And he goes, I don't, that doesn't matter to me. I need to do it because it's right. Does that make sense? It's the right thing to do. And so, again, it's practicing standout virtue, but it's integrating faith and work in such a way so that people around you look at you in the way that you work and they see your calling, whether it's a business person or an educator, whatever it is that God has called you to, and it, and it really stands out and is different. Two, two more things that he talks about. He says, make your neighborhood healthy. I know for a fact that that happens, uh, you know, on Barry's campus, on Shorter's campus. I know that it happens in East Rome. I know that it happens here in downtown Rome. That there are people who have already caught this vision of as believers entering into a neighborhood to, to really change it, to make it healthy. The fourth thing that Keller talks about is he says that we as believers need to engage in high-profile projects for the good of the city. And uh, he, it was funny, he was a little bit apologetic and a little bit sheepish when he said it, but I think what he means is that everybody needs to see that Seven Hills Fellowship doesn't exist for itself but that Seven Hills ex uh, Fellowship exists so that Rome and all of its communities might flourish. So there's no mistaking that that's what we're here to do. And really, if you think about it, that's part of what we've done you know, here with the DeSoto Theater. Over the course of the last 11 years, we've put almost $400,000 into this building to renovate it without ownership, partly because we really want to bless them. Now, we want to use it um, for four or five hours on a Sunday, but it's really part of our vision being worked out here in the city of Rome. Now, let me call time out. Remember that you're in exile, make this place your home, work towards, seek, and pray for the flourishing of the city. You know, all of this is essentially um, a picture of the gospel. And, and let, me, let me say how it's a picture of the gospel. Again, if you look around the room this morning, there are tables with bread and wine, bread and grape juice. 
And these are reminders of what Jesus came to do. What did Jesus come to do? Jesus came from heaven to live as an exile here on earth. At great cost to himself, he entered into a place so that that place would flourish, right? That we might have life that is truly life. And this picture of the Lord's Supper, this bread and wine, this bread and grape juice, what it communicates today is that part of the flourishing of us as human beings is that we have to be in a restored relationship with God. And the only way we can be in a restored relationship with God was through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of God's Son, Jesus. And that's what this meal represents. This meal represents that we are made right with God, right? That we've been forgiven for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And so as you prepare to receive the Lord's Supper today, what I would invite you to do is I would invite you to think about the implications of the gospel, to think about the implications of Jeremiah 29. But maybe more than anything, what I would invite you to do is I would invite you today to believe the gospel, that Jesus entered into your world, into your neighborhood in order to suffer and to die, that you might have a relationship with his father, that you might flourish and truly be who he created you to be. Now, I'm going to read the words of institution and then I'm going to say a prayer, and I'm going to just simply ask you to take some time and to, to confess your sins, uh, to believe in the forgiveness that's being offered you, and then when you're ready, to get up and to receive the Lord's Supper. So I'll read the words of institution. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for just the continued reminder um, that you love us, that you are seeking us, that you have done everything that's required in order to bring us back to you and to bring us into a relationship with you through your son, Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that this morning as we prepare to, to take this bread and wine, that as always, it would remind us of the truth um, that you love us, that we are forgiven, that we've been made right, that you see us now as whole. And so, Father, let us be strengthened, um, let us be sustained uh, by the taking of this bread and wine. Let us remember that in this act that you are declaring loud and clear uh, that you love us and that we are forgiven. We pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.